and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast, currently supported by Frosty Tap. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Gosh, I really don't know if I'm up or down this week. On the one hand, we're hearing we can hug people from next Monday, and on the other, Burley's cancelled, which is such a massive blow to event riders and fans in Britain. I have heard the phrase Corona Coaster recently, as in roller coaster, and I think that's definitely true this week. Our guest this week is the Grand Prix dressage rider Steph Croxford, who pays tribute to her former star horse, the characterful Mr. President. If I had to take a horse into battle, it would have been him. He looked after me all his life. We learned together and that's why I owe him everything. I'll be joined by our news team to discuss events cancelling and others putting tickets on sale, plus a horse abuse case that ended up at the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Finally, the Royal Veterinary College's Andy Fisk Jackson and Rick Farr from Farr and Percy Equine give us some insight into the role of vet hospitals in research. We shouldn't be working on sort of anecdotes, hunches and so forth. What you really want is, is as much proof as you possibly can have that this treatment worked. So more from our vets later. For now, pull down your stirrups and let's kick on to the first fence. And welcome to today's guest interview. I'm Polly Bryan, dressage editor at Horse and Hound, and I'm really delighted to be joined today by international Grand Prix dressage rider Steph Croxford. Steph kickstarted her career in dressage with the very popular gelding Mr. President, competing successfully at the highest level both in the UK and across Europe. Hi, Steph. How's it going? Oh, hello there. I'm, I'm all right. I'm out of lockdown and it's really exciting because the kids are back at school. <laughs> Must feel like a bit of relief from your end. How have you been, you know, juggling lockdown um, and, and kids and homeschooling and dressage and training? How's it all worked for you? It sounds very silly when you, you're on a Derbyshire hillside um, and you've got the horses at home. Yes, apart from the children being at home, Simon's working at home as well. But first thing in the morning, you know, animals need feeding, mm. horses need exercising. You know, it's almost like pandemics happening somewhere else. Right. Um, I've always had, I've always had, say, you know, shopping online delivered. So I haven't had the trauma of having to go to shops. Um, so really, it's only when you suddenly go out of your little in essence bubble isn't it that you realize that you know this is this is quite a big thing out there yeah i've i've heard a lot from other riders and and you know i'm sure many people across the horse world will um will relate that you know the horses don't know that that covid19 is a thing they don't they don't know what's going on and and we have to look after them in just the same way um which i think is a real real blessing for for many people yeah. And I think that's key. I think the mental health side of it and that as well is so important, you know, to be able to get out. And, you know, if you are sitting there and the Wi-Fi is rubbish, everybody's arguing the standard phrase in our houses, who's hogging all the Wi-Fi? <laughs> um, and, um, you you know, you can go outside. You can, I, I'd go out and just go, right, you all sort yourselves out. You're on your homeschooling. You're on your team's interviews mm. and your team calls. I'm mucking out. And I will just go off with a cup of coffee and just just spend time 
with non-humans, it's great. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it absolutely is. I mean, we are so lucky here to have horses. Um, we really, really are, especially in the last year. Um, I just wanted to go back to sort of the earlier days of, of your career and um, just hear a little bit about how you actually became a Grand Prix dressage rider um, and how your career started. Because, of course, I don't think that was that was always the plan for you, was it? Oh my gosh, no, 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 no. I wanted hunting, eventing, jumping, you know, <laughs> doing everything. Why would I want to ponce around in a 20 by 60 arena? I have no idea. And it, <laughs> and it, and it all started really. Um, I had um, an ex hurdler racehorse and he got kicked in the field one day. And I would go off, I'd go off and do team chasing with him and, uh, you know, just one day eventing. Nothing big, but, you know, big enough for me at the time time um and he ended up having to uh, be sort of semi-retired became so he went to a, a hacking home and then I was so upset to see him go because he was such a lovely character I couldn't watch my husband kindly drove him to his new home and I didn't want to be sat at home or sat with him when we, you know, we parted company. Mm. Um, so I um, went into, at the time, he went into the local paper, which was the the, the Yorkshire Post, <laughs> and um, and I just looked and I, and I remember say, saying to a uh, to friend Haley, I'm going to pick anything in here. Let's go and have a look. And all it said, the advert said, four year old chestnut gelding, and I went, <laughs> it's two and a half grand. I'm going, I can afford that. Let's go and have a look. I said, I probably won't be what I need or I'm looking for. And um, so we drove up to North Yorkshire, as you do. And it, it was Ian Smith, uh, at the late Ian Smith at the time. He had this little horse in the, you know, the old Victorian stalls. Yeah, I mean, okay. proper old barns, Victorian stalls. Wow. And he showed me, said, this is the one that you've rung up about. You've come to see. And I looked and went, what else have you got? And he, went, <laughs> and he went through and he showed me, he said, well, this one's for sale, this one's, you know, all driving bread. And I must have looked at about 10. And he said, no, no, you really need to see this little chap being 16, one and a half he was, this little chap out. And I was like, all right then. <laughs> so out, out he um, tootled out and he had a little um, sort of a lunge pen. And what I liked about him was he literally jumped virtually a five bar gate from a standstill and I was like wow he can jump and I only thought at the time oh he's got a funny trot I didn't know that was passage <laughs> um and I just I've never seen anything like before and and so that's and I even tried to beat him down on the price I thought oh two and a half grants a lot of money you know <laughs> and he wouldn't take any less than two and a half thousand so so that's how I ended up with with uh, Mr President and the reason he was called Mr. President is when I took him back to a delivery yard at the time he was up turned out with a huge herd of mares and geldings and he would separate off all the mares he had his girls from the geldings and it was at the time when it was Bill Clinton in you know, the okay. Lewinsky affair and we said you know what we ought to call him Bill Clinton and they <laughs> went no call him Mr. President and that's how he got his name Okay. Oh, what a fabulous story of the, the yeah. very unlikely dressage star. How, <laughs> yes. how, so how did that sort of, how did dressage start? How did you actually 
come round to the idea of dressage how did you manage to train him because he ended up being such a huge star for you wasn't he yeah. well i mean it was when we i we've lived here now 23 years it's when we moved over from lincolnshire over to derbyshire and i'd gone and i'd done some cross-country training some show jumping um and i happened to go to a local uh, cross-country course and, and I, I joined one of the clinics i think it was sonia berry at the time who was um you know a dressage trainer as well which mm. I didn't know um, and uh, I was galloping at all these big fence well I thought they're big big fences you know giving it and he said uh, she said to me I'm not really sure why you're jumping that horse around these fences it should be in the dressage arena and I said what she said, yeah, she said, that this horse, yeah, it's all right for that, but it needs to see the dressage. So I went and did a couple of unaffiliated. I went, oh, I think I won. Bad that. I went, this is easy, going round in circles. And then I went, oh, nailed this, you know, prelim, whatever it was. Um, and then I realised that actually when you did it properly, that he actually needed to know what you were doing. And that's really how it started. He, he found, you know, and he liked posing, he liked showing off. I didn't know that when we went past the pigs, what I called his goose step was passage. And <laughs> and so, you know, and we, we learned, honestly, it was the blind leading the blind and I always felt he was a reincarnate dressage Grand Prix horse because if I put my leg in a certain place I went oh yeah that's sideways oh yeah that's a flying change oh yeah and so we learned together and 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 that's like I say that's why I owe him everything and he owed me absolutely nothing and that's why he had seven wonderful years of retirement yeah of course and you know you had such a such a fantastic career um competing all over all over europe you competed you know everywhere on, on at olympia is, yeah. is there a particular highlight from your your grand prix career with him i think it was my first olympia in the old days i don't even remember that fries used to do a cdi two star and they did a gala evening and I luckily got into the CDI two star and they did this gala evening. And I always remember Simon Fry coming round all the Grand Prix rides and said, look, it was so popular. You used to have about a thousand people that used to come and watch this gala evening. And it was outdoor, it was in the summer. And he said, look, the crowd are really keen, really want to get involved. Can they clap during your freestyle music? And I, a lot of the others were like, oh, no, 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 no we can't do that. And I, and I said, if they see me get all my canter work done and they see me turn to do my final PF pirouette at A, then they can start clapping because I'm nearly home. So when I started that, they, that Simon Fry was like, right, you can start clapping when she starts rotating. So we did that and, and I finished, halted, big roar and, you know, applause. And then that was the year that I then went to Olympia. And obviously what happened in the audience, there were people <laughs> that had remembered and had been at the, the CDI at Fry's. And start when I started rotating in my final quarter pirouette, it was a quarter pirouette into my passage half past the centre line. The clapping started from different little pockets. I could, st I can still hear it now. Pockets around the arena, and then it just, it was infectious, and it, it was so loud. By the end of it, I was thinking, I'm never going to stop. <laughs> and and I find a heart and then I halted and then they all clapped and I got a huge standing ovation and I'll and, and I came out and the first thing Richard said, Richard Davison said, How did you do that? I said, Do what? He said, 
how did you instigate the audience participation? And I said, I don't know. He said, because it was at the time that there was a Russian rider going around at the time who was lifting her hands, waving her hands to say, whooping her down the final centre line. And that was then classed as outside um, influence. And I said, I did nothing. I said, I was too busy holding onto his back teeth to pray I could stop. (laughs) There was nothing to do with me. Yeah, so there was almost, there wasn't quite an inquiry, but there was because of the spontaneous uh, audience participation and and when I came Richard said you will never he said you will never ever experience anything like that again in your life and he's right I haven't how absolutely amazing especially for a sport like dressage which you know yeah it was this little cart horse wasn't he that two and a half thousand pound cart horse that wasn't expected to do anything and suddenly he he did three olympias you know how many horses unless you're carl and charlotte there aren't many horses but you know that go and you've got three olympia plaques and and have traveled all over europe and to seven or eight different countries yeah it's absolutely amazing um and of course you you went on after after he was retired you went on to have a lot of success with uh, mr hyde who was another more unlikely dressage star wasn't he? He, he yeah he was again he was he was half hackney half dutch warm blood he's a very nervous type and i would say uh, mr president i felt like if i had to take a horse into battle it would have been him because he would have died for me. He seriously, even pregnant with the children, I never, ever felt threatened to come off or him hurt me. He looked after me all his life. Whereas Mr Hyde, I would say he would put his brave pants on and he would run around the fire very quickly and close his (laughs) eye, but he would never have gone through fire for me, whereas Mr P would have done. And, you know, and again, I had five wonderful years at International Grand Prix with him. And again, he Mm. took me over Europe and, and, you know, and, and I view it that... I'm lucky that I can take my horse on holiday with the kids. Um, And so that's why we always pick nice places where there's a beach. You go to Dover, (laughs) there's a beach. Or you go to Samoa, you know, the Loire Valley, you know. So we sit there and we pick our shows where we want to go on holiday, like Beritz. It was literally right on on the beach. So Gosh, I think that's a very good way of doing it. (laughs) Where's your favourite place to uh, to compete slash holiday? I, I like I say, I, Samir, I've done, I did Mr. Samir with Mr. President and, and Mr. Hyde, and that's where Mr. President won. So I really enjoyed, I've got lovely memories there. Mm. I had fantastic, op, you know, I was lucky I did the World Cup circuit as well, you know. So Mechelen was wonderful. Olympic, mm. you know, they, they all had their special parts in my heart because they were a memory and a journey that I did yeah. with you know those two horses and hopefully with Mr well Thug Mr Ben <laughs> I might get an opportunity again of you know with Brexit it makes it more difficult now but opportunity now he's got his international school to to go and take the kids mm. and the horse on holiday again I mean, let's hope so. My next question was actually about Mr. Ben. Um, And yes, I have heard that you call him Thug. Just tell me a bit about him. I feel like the nickname says it all, really. (laughs) Well, yeah, he's no spatial awareness whatsoever. He would rather go through than round you because that's less effort. (laughs) But he um, he almost took out two FEI stewards when I did did the Middle Tour Championships at the back end of last year, (laughs) which I do apologise to Lynn and Rita. And um, he, interestingly, his father 
is a coloured Irish cob. Oh, and right. his and his mother is a Dutch warm blood cross hackney. So he is, I call him my, my Irish bog trotter because <laughs> again, but he was still bred by Ian Smith and he was bred for, again, bred for driving. But then everybody says, oh, get yourself a nice cob. I have to say, <laughs> I've got two, my daughters that got the other one that obviously didn't get the memo. He was going to be my next Grand Prix horse after Mr. Mr. Ben. Um, again, but he's got cob in him, but he obviously didn't get the memo and stopped at 14-2. Oh, no. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, so he was supposed to make 16 too, but clearly something got mixed oh, up. Gosh. <laughs> um, but they always say to get yourself a nice cob, and you're joking. Mr. And I say, Annabelle Sherlock, he's called Sherlock, and Mr. Bent are both cob crushes, and they're opinionated, they are arrogant, <laughs> they are self-centred. <laughs> you, know, you know, they always think they know the best. Honestly, it's like permanently having a teenager. Honest to God. <laughs> Not an easy ride then. <laughs> oh, no. You know, what you get, most of the conversation in a Grand Prix with Thug is, I've got this, I've got this, got this. Uh, no, I haven't. And at which oh. point that's too late. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, you have got him up the levels. You're up, you're competing him at Grand Prix. Um, yeah. And you're uh, competing at Wellington CDI as well, aren't you? Yes. Yes, I hope that's his first proper, you know, internationally. He got his um, international qualifications, luckily, in, uh, at Valeview High Profile Show at the back end of, of last year. So, fingers crossed, it's full steam ahead. So, I'm looking forward to propping up the bottom <laughs> i'm heading high my hopes you know i know we've got carl we've got charlotte i know all the olympians are out there fighting for their positions in that team and then there's thug and i <laughs> well i'm sure there'll be a lot of people who will thoroughly enjoy watching you guys perform um i wanted to ask you actually about um well about the fact that throughout your career you've also actually been working in a real life job haven't you but yes, I did do, and until I had Annabelle, because I'm obviously uh, I've done my PhD in my water geochemistry, and up until the children, obviously I was uh, full time um, geochemistry. But then what I found as this is where Miss I, I owe Mister P so much more. I then was able to go back part time doing my the geochemistry, but also part time doing a bit of, I quite like doing the, you know, the dressage to music floor plans mm. um, and floor designs. And what that enables me to do is be at home more for my kids. I mean, they don't appreciate it, but what it means is that I can pick and choose, being more self-employed now, even if I've got different strings to my bow, yeah. I can then say, I can't do Wednesday at half three. I've got to get Ben from school or, you know, we uh, something on those parents evening or there's, you know, there's the, you know, there's something that needs to be done for the kids. It, it, it's it, that's what Mr. P's enabled me to do. I would argue have a second career to enable me to balance work and family life as well yeah. so yeah it's it, it, it no it's I, I i like i say i owe everything to that little horse 
Oh, so lovely to hear. And mm. as you say, what a wonderful thing to be able to combine that family life and, and, and your career and your dressage at, at top level. Talking of sort of inspiring others and uh, perhaps juggling many things, you um, you recently set up a, a Facebook group, didn't you, um, which we'll call SDU. The original name, I believe, is the rather more adult version of Silly Dressage United. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it has proved wildly popular online with riders sharing their funny and hilarious moments in dressage, their, you know, their biggest mishaps. And it's all very lighthearted and enjoyable. Just tell me a bit about setting that up why you wanted to create a place where people could share those sorts of stories well it, it, it really uh, this is this is simon should never leave me on my own to go dog, <laughs> taking the dogs for a walk he was on site oh gosh it must be about four or five weeks ago and i'd seen on the british dressage forum that um, somebody was saying I really want to start are there any amateur riders out there that I really want to start following on Facebook or Instagram to follow their journey see what they're doing Mm. um and and you know get some form of connection because I feel I'm the only one out there and I knew that they'd obviously got the eventers have got their uh, fantastic Facebook page and I thought you know there's nowhere for us there's nowhere for us to go and have a bit of fun. And what it is, is I, and I'm as guilty as anybody else, when you put things on Facebook, you don't show the 20 or 30 attempts Mm. before you video the final video that you put on Facebook or the picture that you put on Facebook. Life isn't like that. And I think what it makes, because social media is really bad at making People believe that perfection happens all the time and you need to have perfection. And that isn't the real world. That isn't real life. And yeah. and we've seen it from the people that have been, you know, coming forward and putting their stuff on. And it's a, I, what I wanted is people to feel they're not alone and not to be embarrassed because there's so many people that have come onto the Facebook page that have said, I haven't competed in 10 years, but this Facebook page has made me feel that I want to go out and it's not a bad thing. If I have a disastrous test, I know where I can post it now. You know, they, they feel <laughs> a place that they, they can, they can ch- chat and share and giggle and I try and keep it so it's happy, it's lighthearted and it's just grown into this monster to the the point now that I'm having my SDU shows um, I think there's five and everybody keeps saying we want one we want one and I'm just like whoa let me just get my head around all of this because <laughs> I don't know how you know it's it, like I say it just seems to just snowballed yeah I mean it really has grown um, but as you say it's social media has has many many huge things going for it but it it can make people feel inadequate because of course people generally don't post the negative Mm. exactly and the insecure and that and 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 what the reality of the situation even carl and charlotte will have a bad day we just never see it yeah you know on 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 facebook and 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 it's, it's it's a way of saying to people, embracing people and saying, you're not on your own. You know, talk to us, talk to people about it. And that's how I've tried to keep it. So if there's any, I have a zero tolerance policy for any kind of trolling or any mm. kind of advertising because it's not that kind of Facebook page. It's 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 not like that. It's, it's to embrace everybody, make everybody feel wanted, make everybody feel that they can actually say something that they might be a little embarrassed to say on other sites. 
Yeah, it's hardly surprising that people have um, have been very keen to share and to get involved because, as you say, a place, a safe place like that to share, you know, the realities of the sports, which always has its ups and downs, no matter what level you're at or what sort of force you have. I yeah. really hope that it does continue to grow and inspire people across all levels. Steph, thank you so much for coming on the Horse Town podcast today. It's been a real pleasure to chat with you. Best of luck this year with Mr. Ben, a.k.a. Thug. Uh, we're very <laughs> excited to see you out and about over this summer. Thank you. Take care. So I'm joined today by two of my horse and hound colleagues to look at the week's news. So first of all, we have our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are you, Eleanor? Yeah, all good. Thank you. Uh, it's been a good week in a post lockdown theme. Uh, it was my birthday on Sunday and I went to an actual pub uh, and sat outside. So that was nice. And Saturday went to a show in Essex, which suddenly worked out as we came back over the bridge at, Dart at the Dartford Crossing that that was probably the furthest I've been away from home since I think last August. <laughs> wow. <laughs> It's like, wow, a different county. It's like, this is frightening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going I'm going on holiday to Cornwall next week. So that will be the furthest wow. I've been from home since I was in Cornwall last September, I think. <laughs> oh, gosh. We also have with us Lucy Elder, our senior news writer. How are things going with you, Lucy? They're going well, thank you, Pippa. I've had, after having several very horsey weekends of reporting and riding and all sorts of horsey things, I had a completely non-horsey weekend Um I psyched myself up to go shopping on Saturday, which isn't my favourite activity, uh, but sometimes it has to be done. And when it was pouring with rain for sort of 12 hours straight, it seemed like a good opportunity. And then I made up for it on Sunday and went to visit some bluebell woods, which was lovely. But uh, yes, all good here. Yeah, I stuck my nose in a shop for the first time in a long time, having done all shopping online for basically a year because I needed some new walking shoes. And I just thought, oh, I'm going to, if I get them online, I'm just going to end up sending like nine pairs back and that's going to be a lot of hassle. So I did. Uh, I masked up and went went to a shop and bought new walking shoes. Also went to a show on Saturday, dressage show, mm -hmm. um, which was fun. My mum was the star of the show. She uh, got a better percentage than me and came home with a rosette. So uh, yeah, well done, mum. Alfie was on good form and we are looking forward to, to continuing to get out and about as things ease so let us look at the week's news lucy coming to you first we heard the devastating news last week that burley horse trials is cancelled for the second year running meaning that we have no british five stars running this year in 2021 and of course didn't in 2020 and i know you spoke to director liz inman about the reasons behind the decision what did she say Yes, I spoke to Liz uh, just to find out a little bit more about the reasons why why Burley just could not go ahead this year. We've seen since we since the news broke online, there's been a lot of questions popping up about had they thought of this, had they considered this, why is it cancelling when other events are getting ready to go ahead. So effectively, she told me that all events start from a different perspective about what their basic infrastructure is, uh, whether they've got permanent facilities or whether as Burley is, they're a greenfield site. And that really alters the costs of running significantly. And she said that the costs, you know, even just to get to set up to run, even if they're running behind closed doors, would have been well in excess of a million pounds. So 
Burley, everything has to be put in place, as I said, running a five star, there's minimum prize money requirements, they have TV costs that go with running a five star. So even before you start, even before that first horse gets to a trot up, there is so many extras to consider. And added to which Burley Horse Trials is owned by Burley Estate, which comes under the overarching body of Burley House Preservation Trust, which in itself has charitable status. So that, again, means that it is unable to underwrite or subsidise the significant financial and the reputational risk that would come if a sudden or late cancellation was forced to happen. And I know a lot of people are mentioning crowdfunding. That's the route that allowed Kentucky, the US five star, to run last month. Was that something that, that Liz and Burley considered? It is. She told me that they did explore crowdfunding uh, with the sport and they spoke to lots of riders among other bodies within the sport. And she said they received masses of support. But there are a lot of other factors to consider here. And it's sadly not just about that. And the estate also has other considerations, such as the local area, how it affects all the people. And at the end of the day, they are there by the invitation of landowners. And so it wasn't just a case that they hadn't considered that. There's there's a lot more playing into this. And it just sadly, it just wasn't going to be an option, an option for them to do this year. And obviously, massive disappointment for fans and for riders. What has been the reaction from the sort of the five star community? Well, I mean, Liz said first off that they they really do get it. They really do understand how disappointing it is um, from from their perspective for you know the owners, the sponsors, horses getting older, and they share in that disappointment. And the riders as well. We've seen we've heard a lot of reaction from them, and I think it's fair to say that overwhelming disappointment is 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 the initial one and sadness that it can't go ahead and uh, and again sadness that horses getting older and owners that are putting so much into the sport and it is it is frustrating and very sad and I think a lot of people are taking time to think about you know what their what their next options are because it hasn't all been sad news I think as Ellen is going to touch on in a bit we've we've got some positive news as well but there is no denying that it is a very it was very sad to lose both British five stars for two years in a row Mm, definitely and uh, outside of eventing we have heard about another big show being cancelled this week just fill us in on that one Lucy so we had Dublin Horse Show sadly is cancelling this year again Um, obviously it didn't run last year because of Covid and the same same this year it's the uncertainty that's surrounding that Uh, they are going to be hosting some showing and show jumping classes at the Royal Dublin Society National Championships so there is going to be something for some riders and and the questions there but again that's all going to be behind closed doors what this does mean as well as the huge disappointment of Dublin Horse Show not happening is that it is the second leg of the European Division 1 of the FEI Nations Cup jumping series so we heard back in April that Hickstead was going to go ahead with Royal International but without some of the key classes and one of those is its Nations Cup leg. Now Dublin and Hickstead are back to back in the Nations Cup calendar and while the FEI has got in its rules provision for what happens if there is a cancellation of a leg and um, allocation of points uh, for those nations that would have collected points at those events, two events back to back is quite a hole in the calendar when each nation only has four legs they can collect points at and there are three nations that have been allocated both Hickstead and Dublin as their as their nation's cup legs for collecting points so I spoke to the FEI last week to ask 
you know what's going to happen and I think we can expect an update quite soon they told me that the jumping committee is closely monitoring the situation um, and these are extraordinary circumstances and they are going to be shortly formalizing a proposal to present to the FEI board so I think we might we might hear more about that soon hopefully. Mm, so watch this space on that. But so sad to lose that sort of premier Irish show at, at Dublin. I've had some, uh, some some good times reporting there as well as obviously at Burley. Eleanor, turning to you for a bit of upbeat news. It's not all doom and gloom for shows. What events have been announced are good news this week? Yeah, it's nice. Obviously, with all that very sad news, it was also good to hear some positivity. So Horse of the Year show has confirmed that that's going ahead on the 6th to the 10th of October at the NEC as normal. Um, and tickets were due to go on sale at about the time this podcast comes out. Uh, tickets are now already on sale for Royal Windsor Horse Show, which is going to run in July, early July this year. Um, and they're hoping for up to 4,000 spectators a day. And there are plans to hopefully release more tickets after the 21st of June um, if the, the route out of lockdown goes as expected. Uh, we also spoke to Bowlesworth. That's also running in July. Um, and they're really looking forward to welcoming people back again because, of course, they've had two years uh 2019 they had that horrifically wet weather and they had to not have the public in that year so they're really keen to to get people back in and uh, also we heard from the jockey club which is the new organizers of blenheim palace uh, horse trials and that's due to run as planned 16th to the 19th of september and um, they're looking forward to announcing more information about tickets so there is some positive news Great. Thank you, Eleanor. And thank you, Lucy, for all your all insight too. Eleanor, we also need to talk about a horse abuse case, which has ended up in the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Um, talk us through this one from the beginning. What happened in the case? Yeah, so this is one we, we have reported on before, uh, sort of ever since the incident happened in October 2016. This was a horse called Castle Bar Contraband, who was ridden by a UAE rider, um, Sheikh Abdul Aziz bin Faisal Al Qasimi, in October 2016. Um, this was a, a one star endurance ride in France. Um, the horse had a horrific fracture, a very, very nasty, catastrophic injury, and had to be put down straight away. And we reported before and it went to the tribunal, which the tribunal accepted the vet statement that she had followed a standard procedure, which didn't include the use of a drug, which was found to be in the horse's system. It's called xylazine and it's used as a sedative analgesic and muscle re relaxant, but it's prohibited in competition. And the vet denied that she had used that to put the horses down, the horse down. The post-mortem found lesions in a highly targeted location, which they believed was consistent with um, recent injections, which the FEI thought and stated said the horse had been nerve blocked in training before and during the competition. So the FEI's view was that this nerve blocking and um, with in combination with some osteoarthritis had led to stress fractures, which then caused the catastrophic injury. So this went to an FEI tribunal and the rider was given some sanctions. What sanctions was he given? Yeah, it was a record 20-year ban and a fine of 17,500 Swiss francs or £14,500. Uh, that was last June. Uh, the rider appealed to the Court of Arbitration for Sport and the panel has ruled that the FEI has not proved that it was abuse. And they, uh, they found that neither the rider nor the vet could reasonably have detected this alleged bone fatigue in the horse. So they, and they said the horse had passed the inspection the day before the event, had passed all the vet gates and couldn't be ruled as unfit to compete. 
gosh. So a big sort of penalty given by the FEI tribunal and then overturned at that, at that court of arbitration for sport. So quite an important ruling there. Mm. And looking to future possible similar cases, things have already changed around how the FEI detects nerve blocking, haven't they? Yeah, so the, this case um, was a main driver for, for the FEI to develop this hyposensitivity control system, which can indicate whether a horse may have been nerve blocked. Um, and so the aim of that is to prevent catastrophic injuries uh, in future. Okay, well, that sounds like a positive for the future, although um, not the outcome I think most of us would have hoped for in that in that court of arbitration for sport. Thank you, Eleanor, for running us through that. And thank you to Lucy for joining us today too. The Horse and Hound podcast is currently supported by Frosty Tap from Roco ES Limited, leaders in frost-free technology. Introducing the C1000 Yard Hydrant, Fresh mains water all year round, no matter what the temperature outside. So now it's time to hear from our vets. Hello everyone, it's, uh, my name is Andy Fisk-Jackson. I'm one of the surgeons at the Royal Veterinary College. And we've also got uh, Rick Farr on the line from uh, Farr and Percy. Hi Rick. Hi Andy, how are you? Uh, you all know Rick well, I'm good, thank you. <laughs> So just in this particular podcast, we just thought to have a little um, talk about research which goes on, um, which I think everyone appreciates happens, and it happens for a very good reason. The whole point of research is to try and benefit patients so that when you, know, you ask about a treatment, you ask about a diagnostic process, we can say, well, actually, yes, you know, this, uh, this has got a you know, 70% chance, 80% chance of, of solving the problem, but there's this particular side effect or... Uh, it won't detect this, etc., etc. You can imagine all the different questions that you might have, and we've only got the answer to them because of research. Equally, research I think does fill people with a little bit of dread. That people think, you know, would, or anyone is testing things on 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 patients, which actually in the UK is the most tightly regulated probably in the world. Um, to you know, there's simply no opportunity for. Um, uh, things like that to happen. Everything is goes through ethical approvals, um, and and many of the uh, more interventional studies are done um, in in other countries, which we obviously may well get results from, but um, wouldn't uh, have been possible to carry out in the UK. Now, what we are, one of the most common types of research we'll do will be retrospective studies. What that means we look back over all the cases uh, that we've had of a certain condition. And that might be injury to a particular structure, a joint, or a particular type of colic surgery. And we basically look back and see um, how these patients have done, and perhaps with slightly different methods, different um, diagnostics, different breeds, etc. And we look for patterns, we look for things which ultimately are statistically uh, significant, uh, so that we can go back and say, actually, you know what, when we did that, this patient did better. Or when we used that diagnostic test, it was really really good and we were able to you know cut out lots of other tests because this test showed it really really well and of course it's very much in the news at the moment of course with all the uh, coronavirus testing and so forth but your horse um when it comes into the hospital it's clear to to point out that there will be never any change to the treatment uh, your horse would get um, simply on the base of a test that is simply not allowed certainly uh, within the Royal Veterinary College, which is very tightly uh, regulated, um, but we could get into a lot of trouble if that was ever any uh, suggestion. If there's ever any um, uh, anything we will do, 
um, that uh, is, is deemed to be, has got approval ethically, you will always be informed uh, and asked whether you're happy to take part in a particular trial. And that may be where we've got a drug where we've used often for quite some time um, and we're never quite, I'll use an example. We've got a drug called lidocaine, which we use um, for uh, colics after surgery to try and promote the gut to move again um, uh, normally after surgery. And the jury's always been out a bit on whether it works or whether it doesn't work that well. And we're part of a study at the moment, lots of different centres in the UK and actually around Europe are looking at um, uh, horses of whether they, they benefit from this drug or not. It's only a local anaesthetic drug, it's a drug you would use for lots of other conditions given intravenously, it's the same process, um, but it's an important thing to know. And can I can I add into that as well as well? I think from from a client perspective and from our first opinion side, if clients are always aware that this goes on, to actively participate in that because obviously you'll be getting consent on the referral mm. side, but it benefits them because the next time their horse needs anything, the research that is coming out of yourselves as mm. well, and then keeping in constant touch. I think going back to one of your points just a moment ago, and. Um, looking at that retrospective thing so when clients as they move as people invariably do if you just leave forwarding details if your horse has had any kind of additional surgery or something slightly unusual to make sure that you still have a point of contact because you do a lot of research looking back at this data and Absolutely. it could be a few years down the line that suddenly you need to get in touch with someone. Yeah, my, my, the first paper I ever produced was looking at uh, fractures of something called a deltoid tuberosity, which is part of the bone on your humerus in the shoulder of the horse. Um, it's very rare. And I was um, having to contact people whose horse had been in the hospital about 20 years previously. Um, wow. And needless to say, there's a fair chance, unfortunately, the horse uh, may not have still been um, with the owner. Um, but uh, nevertheless, we were able to produce a piece of research which was um, is important, had never been done before. And that's purely looking back at horses that have had this quite obscure fracture. And how do they get on ultimately? Um, and now we're able to use that data to say, you know what, if your horse has this fracture, we don't do anything with it. We don't try and operate because we know because of that research, it's best simply to leave it alone, box rest the horse, don't fiddle with it. And, and that has the best outcome. But that's only by, by following up on these cases over that 20 year period, it's only by doing this then we'll be able to you know provide that kind of uh, instruction uh, in the future and, and be able to give you, you know, real figures real evidence what we call evidence-based medicine and that's where really we are we're no longer we shouldn't be working on sort of anecdotes hunches and so forth what you really want is is as much proof as you possibly can have that this treatment works and so we need Rick for that. We need Rick to give us the clinical details and, and um, uh, images. And, um, and also he, he gets to uh, benefit from um, you know, getting that experience as well, I think. Uh, Rick, would you agree? Oh, oh no, definitely. And I, th I think it's the thing of having that good relationship between a referral centre and first opinion practice that when you do have this research going on, particularly I, I, one example is on back surgeries and thinking about that, how from a statistical point of view, how many are worth doing them, how many repeats you get. So when you're actually in the field, popping yourselves a text or an email to say, look, we've got on hand this expertise just down the road. I, they've, I know they've done some research on this. Before we make a decision and spend some money, let's find out the stats. That way the, you can get all this information. Then does it warrant a referral? Can we do this in the field? And everything. Mm. It, the patient's yeah. going to benefit, and frankly, from the patient's or from the client's pocket point of view, 
it can save you thousands. So I think clients actively getting involved in keeping up with this research and allowing their data to, to be used with their informed consent, I think is invaluable and everyone can benefit from it. Yeah, I think on the whole, we find, um, you know, uh, clients are actually quite receptive to this. And, you know, I collect a lot of back data with uh, sensors, you know, I come out, go out on the people's yards as well and, and collect uh, data. And they are, um, you know, it's all part of advancing, um, you know, the field of veterinary medicine, constantly advancing, constantly questioning, and constantly reviewing what we're doing. Is what we're doing the best possible thing for our patients? Um, while safeguarding the actual welfare of our, the, the patients uh, who are you know, currently under our, our care. Fantastic. Okay, so hopefully that gives you a little bit of an insight uh, about the research uh, aspect um, of our job, uh, especially in referral centres, um, and how that interaction um, uh, with our referring vets is is, is just so key in it. Um, so, um, yeah, Rick, uh, thanks very much for um, being a part of it. My absolute pleasure. You uh, you gave us a, an insightful view once more. So thank you very much. And, yeah, we'll I'll speak to you soon. All right, take care. Thank you both. Next week, Andy and Rick will be back to tell us all about bone scans. And we have an interview with eventing legend Ginny Elliott, who talks about the horse who kick-started her career, the incredible Priceless. We'll review Wellington CDI and look back at the week's news too. Thank you for listening to the Horse and Hound podcast, currently supported by Frosty Tap. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you could rate or review us in your podcast app or share across social media to help us spread the word. Talk to you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.